Well, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 4. And uh, I'm preaching a message this morning I've entitled, Believing is Seeing. We're in the middle of a series within the series. I'm calling Jesus is God. Now, all of John's Gospel, John presents to us the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is in fact God. But in these two chapters, chapter 4 and chapter 5, it is especially on display where Jesus, by his own acts and by his own admissions, gives us insight of his divine nature. Now, many of you will remember dates and places where impactful things happened in your life, and they are forever imprinted upon your mind. There's probably one or two people here today that can remember where you were on December 7th, 1941, when Pearl Harbor was bombed, and you got that information. There's probably several of you who were uh, alive and can remember where you were on November 22nd, 1963, when you got the news that President John F. Kennedy had been assassinated. Those events just imprint on our minds. I have several in my own life. You probably won't remember several of these, but I remember them. August 16th, 1977. I was eight years old. I was in my Aunt Mitty's living room in in Sycamore, Georgia. My mom came in and said, Troy, I just found out Elvis Presley died. I was an eight-year-old. I was a very big Elvis fan, and I cried. Three years later, my brother Tony was getting ready for school. He was in high school his senior year, and it was December 8th, 1980. He woke me up after he heard on the radio, Troy, John Lennon was just shot and killed last night. I was now a Beatles fan, and I cried. <laughs> Three months later, I get home off the school bus, walk home, and I walk into the house, and there's my brother Carl sitting watching the television, March 30th, 1981. And it was an odd experience because normally he'd be out on the farm working that time of the day. I said, Carl, what are you inside watching TV for? Does Dad know you're in here? <laughs> and he said, Troy, Ronald Reagan was just shot. And I was also a fan of Ronald Reagan, so I cried. These things, we remember them. Many of you remember exactly where you were September 11th, 2001. Who can remember that exact moment? I was in Cracker Barrel off of Shallowford Road, and I get a call from my wife on my flip phone. I said, what's up? I'm having breakfast with some youth pastors. And she said, Troy, I just saw on the morning news a plane has flown into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. And while we're on the phone, she screams, another one just hit the second tower. That forever will be imprinted on my mind. In the passage we're going to study today, something very similar happens to a royal official from King Herod's court. Something so profound, so life-altering, that the exact moment is printed on his mind. Today we will consider the second miracle, or the second sign, as John the Gospel writer calls it, and we'll notice, again, believing is seeing. And yes, I know that's a reverse of the familiar phrase, seeing is believing. But what we'll discover from the passage, and particularly from this royal official's faith, is that believing is seeing. So look with me in your Bible or on the sermon outline I've provided as we read from John 4, beginning in verse 43. This is the inspired and errant word of God. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. 
So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Now, our passage before us today begins with these words, after two days. What's the two days in reference to? It's the reference to the conclusion of the long narrative we studied the last three weeks, the long narrative of the conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. And if you'll remember the way that concluded, she went back to her village, back to her town, and she told them about Jesus. Could this be the Christ? They, many, came out to meet him, and then they compelled him, stay with us in the Samaritan city. And he stayed with them for two days, preaching and teaching the word. And they affirmed at the end of that passage that Jesus Christ was indeed the Savior of the world. Well, after those two days, he returns to the village of Cana in Galilee. You probably remember Cana. It mentioned in the text. That's the place where he turned water into wine, as recorded in chapter 2. He goes back to that very same town, and there he performs this second miracle, this second sign, as verse 54 puts it. Well, there are two paragraphs in our passage today, and as such, I've got two main big ideas I want to bring to your attention from the text this morning. The first one is this. Number one, I want us to consider the diverse responses to the Savior. As you look at this passage, you begin to see there are really three distinct, three different, three diverse kinds of people and therefore kinds of responses that they give to Jesus. Responses to who he claims to be and what he does. Now, sadly, two of these three responses are not saving responses. The first response I want to point out from the text is this. Number one, a response to Jesus is outright rejection. Outright rejection. Interestingly, in verse 44, we have what the Bible translators have put in there. It's not in the original, but they have put verse 44 in parentheses as a parenthetical statement, and it could be, but I really think it connects well with the verse in front of it and the verse after it. It says, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Now, what is Jesus's hometown? Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth is his hometown. He is the adopted son of Joseph, Joseph the carpenter of Nazareth. Now, Luke records 
that Jesus launched his ministry, after he launched his ministry, after his baptism and temptation in the wilderness, he goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. And he actually enters the very synagogue where he would have gone with his stepfather many, 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 many times. And he is coming back after his ministry has launched. It's the hometown boy coming home. He's, he's made it big. He enters the synagogue. Everybody knows he, Jesus is in town, that he's been causing quite a stir across the promised land. And as he enters the synagogue, he stands, which is a sign of, I'm prepared to read from the Scripture. And someone hands him the scroll of Isaiah. And Jesus very purposefully turns to a section in the scroll of Isaiah that describes the prediction and the promise of the coming Messiah and what he will do. He folds up the scroll, he hands it to the attendant, and he sits down, and all the eyes are on Jesus. What's the hometown boy going to say? What does he say? Today, this promise is fulfilled in your midst. In other words, I'm the Messiah. How did they receive him? Oh, good to know. No, that is not how they received him in his hometown. They said, isn't this Joseph's son, the carpenter, the guy that works with wood in the shop? He expects us to believe he's the Messiah? It gets even worse. Look at Luke chapter 4, beginning of verse 28. When they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. That's how they responded. Let's throw him over the cliff. Let's kill him. He was rejected by his hometown. And at that, Jesus left Nazareth and presumably never went back there again. But I believe when Jesus says a prophet has no honor in his hometown, he's not only referring to Nazareth specifically, but he's referring to the region Nazareth was located in, the region of Galilee. And it's the region where he spent the bulk of his ministry. In fact, notice three chapters from here in John chapter 7, uh, in Galilee, what they said of Jesus. Others said, verse 41, this is the Christ, but some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? And down in verse 52, they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This was outright rejection in Galilee. So here's the strange turn of events I want you to think about. He goes to the woman of the well quite purposefully. She believes. He's compelled by her townspeople to come to the town and to stay with them. He stays with them for two days. And he receives an overwhelming response of reception. Then he very deliberately and purposefully leaves a place where he is overwhelmingly received to go to a place where he will be overwhelmingly rejected. Well, I want us to think about what was Jesus' purpose here? Why did he do this? Again, verse 44 um, it begins with the word for. That word for indicates purpose. You may remember in Luke chapter 2 when the angel came to Joseph. He told Joseph, this is what you're supposed to name the baby that's in Mary's womb. You shall call his name Jesus for. Here's why he's getting the name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Verse 43, after the two days he departed for Galilee, left Samaria. For. This is why. Because Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. He's going to the very place he knows will reject him. He's going with a very specific purpose. 
not many people operate this way, do they? If you're praying, God, I need to know your will. <laughs> I want to know where you want me to go. We will say when we have some hostility or some difficulty, oh, that was a closed door. <laughs> Lord didn't want me to go there. That door closed because man, it was going to be a little difficult. We usually take the path of least resistance and think that's God's will. Jesus does just the opposite. He goes to the place of greatest resistance because that was God's will. Sometimes you go to the place where everybody's familiar with you, and that's where you're rejected the most. Sometimes you don't want to go where everybody knows your name. Outright rejection. There are many people today who outright reject Jesus. Why? He doesn't meet their approval. He's not the kind of Messiah they're looking for. He's not the type of savior or religious figure they desire or want. But interestingly, when you read verse 45, after it says a prophet has no honor in his hometown, it seems to be saying that just the opposite is what happened. Notice verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. It says they welcomed him. Well, maybe there is honor in your hometown. Well, not so fast. Why did they welcome him? The text says, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem. What did he do in Jerusalem? Remember back in chapter 2. Jesus goes to Jerusalem with his newly called disciples. He goes into the temple, and what does he do in the temple? He cleans house. He turns over t tables. He charges out the money changers and the sellers of goods. And there he confronts with great authority and precision the religious uppity-ups of Jerusalem. And so here down in the south in Jerusalem, the center of Judaism, he sets them on edge. He goes back home to Galilee. Hey, you got in their face, Jesus. You told them what's up. They always look down on us up here in Galilee. Jesus, you showed them. They received him. Why? Because of what he had done in Jerusalem. The hometown boy shaking things up. And that really leads right into the second response to Jesus we see. First, there's outright rejection. And then these folks we see, they respond to Jesus for personal gain. They responded to Jesus for personal gain. There are people who would like to be associated with Jesus, who receive Jesus because of what they think they can get from him. It's for personal gain. We can see this in our world today, can't we? When a particularly gifted athlete makes it to the big leagues, all of a sudden everybody starts coming out of the woodwork, right? He gets a multi-million dollar contract, people got their hands out. Hey man, I got a business venture that is a can't miss. I just need you to underwrite and fund it for me. The very gifted singer gets a big record deal. All of a sudden, she had no idea how many budding songwriters she was friends with. They're pitching her their song ideas. This is what's happening here. And Jesus recognizes, this is why many people are going to come to me, because of what they think they can get out of personal gain. Look again at verse 48. Jesus speaking says this, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, it's important to note, we can't see this in the English, but in the Greek, the personal pronouns you are plural. Unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. He's rebuking the fickle faith 
of the Galileans there. He's rebuking the faith of those who think association with Jesus is going to be some kind of gain for them. Here's the thing. Jesus knew what was in the hearts of people. He knew what was in their hearts. Again, back in chapter 2, after he uh, performed his work there in Jerusalem at the feast, many people said, oh, he's the guy. Look at John chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. There was a, theirs was a belief. Yes, it was a belief with air quotes, right? You've seen that before. They believed. In Jesus. They liked the show. They liked the, the miracles. They wanted to see more signs. Hey, come on, Jesus. We want to hear Jesus' greatest hits. Perform those for us. Jesus got talent. Let's see what you got. Do the circus act. They were drawn to it. They were enthralled by it, entertained by it. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew people would follow him just because celebrity attracts. Now, we certainly, we don't see that today, do we? Celebrity attracts. Of course we do. Is there any other explanation as to why so many in our country are absolutely enamored by the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial? Why are people so too into this every single day? They keep it on all day long. They got to know what's happening. Part of it, we want to watch celebrity, and the other thing, we want to watch celebrities fall. So we kind of enjoy that sadistically. This is their deal. They were following him because of the celebrity associated with Jesus. They wanted the gifts, not the giver. They wanted the power of Jesus, what he could do for them, but not the person of Jesus. They wanted the signs. They didn't want to be saved. It's amazing to me how throughout all four gospel accounts, Jesus dispels popularity. Jesus is indifferent towards the growing throngs that were following him. He was not afraid to say the tough things that caused fans to start just peeling away. Because again, he's not looking for fans, he's looking for followers. And can I tell you, honestly, as a pastor, I can be given over towards that wrong motive. I have to check my own heart. I could become focused on counting nickels and noses. That's an old preacher saying. I can become focused on getting more people. What was our attendance this week compared to last week? We have more people than we had last year. There's new people coming. How many visitors guests did, slips did we get this week? Maybe it would be better if we say, you know, you might want to think about leaving. We've got four brightly lit exit signs to show you how to get out of here. Should we be concerned about growing a crowd for a crowd's sake or preaching the gospel with clarity and truth? Does this kind of following Jesus for personal gain happen today? Absolutely it does. Are there people who follow Jesus just because of what they think they can get out of him? Of course there are. There are those who attend church because of the social benefits it provides, the business contacts, or maybe it's just family tradition. We want to make mama happy, so we go to church. 
but their hearts have not been awed by the glory of God. They're not enamored with the beauty of Jesus. It's just what I can get out of it. They have little interest in learning about God, but seek mainly the practical benefits of church attendance. And friends, this is why so many churches have abandoned and so many preachers have jettisoned strong doctrinal Bible preaching and now just pretty much speak forth glorified self-help sermons. They've worn off the apparent rough edges of the gospel. The gospel is an offense. To say you're lost and dying because of your own sin, that's offensive to people. They're distasteful to our modern sensibilities. Paul told his son in the faith, this is exactly what would happen in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Look what he said there. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Friends, the message of the church is not a life skills class. The message of the church, the message of the gospel, is that all of us are desperately sick. We're hopelessly lost, and it were not for the loving grace of Jesus, we would forever be condemned in our sin to a devil's hell. But that's not an imp- a popular message, and so it's abandoned. So you've got those who outright reject Jesus, You've got those who are enamored by the show and come to Jesus because of the personal gain. Friends, neither of those people are saved. What does that mean? There are people in churches, people who've gone through the baptistry, who came for what they could get, and they're not saved. Who then are the people whom Jesus really saves? Who are the genuinely converted We see in this third person who comes to him, those who come in humble faith. Humble faith. And we see this response to Jesus in this royal official who comes to him from Capernaum. Again, look at verse 50. The man, that's the royal official, believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Here's the situation. Jesus has come back to Cana, again, the place where he turned the water to wine. The royal official, the text says, came from the city of Capernaum. Now, the word translated official there is the Greek word basilikos. You don't need to know that, but you probably hear some English words around that. It literally means a royal official, and likely he is an attendant. He is an official in King Herod's court, and because of that, most scholars believe he was probably Gentile, not Jewish, being in a Gentile's court, and this royal official from Uh, King Herod's court, comes in humble faith. Here is a man of position. Here is a man of authority. Here is a man of considerable influence. And we see his humility, first of all, in the way in which he addresses Jesus. He says, sir. The Greek word under sir there is the word kurios, which normally in the New Testament is translated Lord. He says, Lord. My son is sick. He humbly asks. Now, there's every reason to expect someone of his position, someone of his power, could come to Jesus from that position and say, listen, 
My boy has noble blood. You carpenter turned rabbi, you're coming with me to Capernaum so you can heal him. Instead, he comes in humble faith. Again, he came from Capernaum to Cana. He asked Jesus to come down to Capernaum. What do you mean by that? It's quite literally coming down. In elevation, the city of Capernaum was right on the Sea of Galilee, and its elevation was actually below sea level. The city of Cana, the village of Cana, we know was at 984 feet, so a rise of 1,000 feet in elevation. Further, Capernaum was some 21 miles away from Cana. So I tr- looked it up on Google Maps this week. We're something of similar variety here. Signal Mountain Post Office. It's 14 miles from where we sit right now. And it is almost exactly 1,000 feet in elevation from where we sit right now. So imagine this official walking, not 14 miles to Signal Mountain, but 21 miles up 1,000 feet. That's what he did to come find Jesus. Those of you who are parents, you can probably identify on some level with what he's going through. That there is a pain so deep when you see your child helplessly sick or injured. Whenever our first child was born, Aubrey, she was taken immediately out of the delivery room to the NICU. She was in the NICU for 10 days, had to have an emergency surgery right after birth. And I can remember as a 24-year-old dad going by the NICU and looking through the window and seeing my newborn baby with needles poked in her skull and tubes coming out of her. It is a helpless feeling. A few years later, when my daughter Aubrey, uh, Ashley was a toddler, she had a very, very high fever. Amy took her to the pediatrician. I'm working on the farm. And the pediatrician says she's probably got meningitis and admitted her into the hospital in Valdosta, Georgia immediately. And Amy finally got a hold of me. This is before cell phones. And I go to the hospital. It is a helpless feeling when your child's sick. Ten years ago, I get a call from a number I don't recognize that tells me, your son's in a ditch. He's been hit, and his leg is filleted open. And I go and find him there. It's a helpless feeling. When your daughter calls you, Dad, I just totaled my car. Trevor called me last week. Dad, yeah, what's up? I just busted my tire. I hit a curb. (laughs) Why do they call Dad when they get in a wreck, huh? There's actually been times when I've gotten a call from a child. I said, did you get in a wreck? No, okay, got that out of the way. Why? Because there's a sinking feeling when your child is helpless. And this official says, I'm going 21 miles because I've heard about this Savior. Because my child, likely in a coma, dying, sick, and he comes in humble faith. Look again at verse 50. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. If you'll remember, in our previous passage we studied, Jesus was in the village of Samaria, the town of Sychar. There's no record that Jesus performed a miracle there. No sign, no wonder, no magic trick. He simply testifies of who he is and his nature. And many believed. He comes to his hometown of Galilee, and what do they say? Perform some tricks, Jesus. We want to see a sign, but this Gentile official just heard the word of Jesus and believed. The people of his home 
give us a sign. Even back in John chapter 2, again, when he cleaned out the temple, the Jewish leaders came to him. Look at John 2, verse 20. So the Jews said to him, What sign, that's a miracle, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Give us a sign. Show us a miracle. Perform a trick. Then maybe we'll believe you. And by the time we get to the end of Jesus' ministry, it's no different. John chapter 11, we have probably the most fantastic miracle Jesus performed. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Four-day dead Lazarus. Decaying, stinking cadaver Lazarus. He said, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus comes out like a mummy, right? And all the mourners who were gathered there saw it. There's no denying Jesus resurrected this four-day dead dude from the dead. And word traveled where? Back to Jerusalem. Was this a sign good enough for people to believe? No, just the opposite. Look at John eleven forty seven. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. They were asking for signs. He's performed many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then what? The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. It's all about personal gain. They kept saying, show us a sign, but he performed signs. There weren't enough signs he could perform to overcome their hardened, cold hearts. But the Samaritans, this Gentile official, they believed his word. He spoke, and they believed. My focus this morning is not just merely on the diverse responses we see to the Savior in the passage, but I want us to consider a few things about Jesus himself, the Savior. And so secondly this morning, I want us to consider the divine rescue of the Savior. The rescue Jesus makes in saving the life of this official's son. And I want us to see how this rescue parallels really our own rescue, our own salvation. Often when we refer to our salvation, we use the term grace. And that's completely and totally true. Our salvation is by grace. The reformers came around that Latin phrase, sola gratis, by grace alone. We sing the great hymn of our faith, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And if I were to ask you, give me a definition of grace, most of you would give the textbook definition that you've heard your Christian life, unmerited favor. And that is 100% true. Unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. But here's the thing. The saving grace of God actually goes deeper than that. It's not just that we receive something that we don't deserve. But the saving grace of God is that we don't receive what we do deserve. Like that's the first thing about this grace and this rescue. I want us to see his saving grace mercy his saving mercy salvation is just not about the blessing we get from god salvation is also about not receiving the condemnation we deserve from god people will say in our world justice we want justice give us justice justice for this group for this fringe group we want fairness we know our rights 
We demand our rights. This is a right. That's a right. We want to get what we deserve. Listen, people don't want to get what they deserve if they knew what they deserved. People don't want fairness if they knew what real fairness meant. People do not want the justice of God if they understood what the justice of God included. We deserve His wrath. Fairness would be eternity in hell. But His saving mercy, His saving mercy is not giving us what we deserve. This is how God saves sinners. This is what Paul meant in the very familiar Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is exactly what we see in our passage. This royal official's son was healed, not because he deserved to be healed, not because of his father's position or power or influence or because he made some great monetary payment to Jesus' ministry budget or even because he was less of a sinner than other people. No, likely this royal official Gentile was more of a sinner in Herod's court and had done some pretty heinous thing in service to Herod. This divine rescue from the Savior was not owing to anything in the man or what he had done. It is purely owing to his saving mercy. And if you're here this morning and you are genuinely saved, you need to know it's nothing in you. It's completely owing to his saving mercy. But not only that, this divine rescue is also accomplished through his sovereign power. His sovereign power. The man apparently thought that Jesus needed to be physically present in the presence of his sick son in order for the boy to be healed. Now, this is likely because many of the pagan healers of that day would come into the presence of someone who was sick and would perform their incantations and would try to summon healing from all of their acts and dances and things they would say. So he says, Jesus, I need you to come down to Capernaum, walk the 21 miles with me so my son will be healed. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. 20 miles away, Jesus is up in Cana, 1,000 feet elevation. The boy's down in Capernaum. Go, your son will live. In fact, the boy was healed. Look again at verse 51 and 52. As he, the official, was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, I told you before, they started counting hours at sunup, 6 a.m., seven hours after that, it's one o'clock in the afternoon. He says, about one o'clock in the afternoon yesterday. And he remembered it was one o'clock in the afternoon when Je Jesus said, go, your son will live. He would forever and always remember that very moment when Jesus said, your son will live. You know what this is? Sovereign power. Who else can do that? Who else can be 20 miles away and heal someone? Only the God of the universe. By his sovereign power. And I would tell you this morning, it doesn't matter how far away you are from Jesus. You can be 20 miles, you can be 20 years from following Jesus. 
you're never too far away from his sovereign power to save. The great American theologian and thinker, Jonathan Edwards, he put it like this, what are you afraid of that you dare not venture your soul upon Christ? Are you afraid that he cannot save you? That he is not strong enough to conquer the enemies of your soul? But how can you desire one stronger than the, quote, mighty God, as Christ is called by Isaiah? Is there need of greater than infinite strength? Let me put it to you this way. Jesus is both willing and able to save you. He's willing because of his saving mercy. He's able because of his sovereign power. He is a willing and able Savior. But further, in that sovereign power of Jesus saying, saving this boy who is surely on his way to die, he was dead for all intents and purposes, we see the picture of what Christ has done in we who know him. I quoted earlier from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but that chapter, the first seven verses before it says this, but you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you once walked following the course of this world, the spirit that is now at work among the sons of disobedience, among whom you all once lived, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might display, he might show his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You were dead, but God, but God. The sovereign power of our Savior has the same saving effect of imparting life where there is death. But here's the beauty of the gospel I want us to see this morning. This divine rescue of the Savior does not just bring us from death to life, but the saving power of Jesus keeps us there and also uses us to impact other people. And that's where we see this final thing about his salvation, his sanctifying work. His sanctifying work. Look again at verse 53. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. Now we had already seen that this man believed at the word. But now he is the next day, and he's still believing. This is the keeping, the saving power of God. Jesus, in his grace, will continue to demonstrate that he is indeed a powerful and gracious Savior through his saving work, his keeping work, his sanctifying work. If you're saved today, if you're still believing today, you need to know it is only because of his sanctifying, saving power. He is keeping you. He will hold you fast. What happened when the, when the man got home? The boy's healed. 
I just imagine in my sanctified imagination, he goes to the boy's mother and says, Jesus said it yesterday at one o'clock at the very moment when he was coming out of his fever, the boy will live. She said, I'd like to know this Jesus. The nurse who was attending to the sick little boy, I'd like to know this Jesus who can heal from certain death. The household servants who met him on the road, we want to know Jesus. The man and all his household believed. And this royal official, he believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he kept on believing the word. This is the sanctifying work of Christ's rescue of sinners. In fact, look at this next slide. Believing in Jesus is not something we just do one time and we're done. Believing in Jesus is a continuing, ongoing, and growing trust in Christ. We can think of this faith sometimes with this illustration of marriage. If you were to come to me and say, Troy, how can you prove that you're married? I could say, well, in December of 1989 at First Baptist Church Riverview, I stood before an assembled congregation, and my brother Tony led us through the marriage vows. The wedding ceremony proves I'm married. And you say, well, lots of people have had wedding ceremonies, and 50% of them are not married anymore. That didn't prove you're married. Oh, wait, I've got the, the document from the clerk of the court there in Hillsborough County, Florida. Shows I'm married. Lots of people have that document. Let me show you the wedding album. I've got photos. I'm wearing a wedding ring. That doesn't prove you're married. What proves I'm married? Because last night and the night before that, I laid down in a bed with my wife, and before I rolled over to fall asleep, I gave her a kiss, just like the night before, and we said to each other, I love you. I know I'm married because I'm married. How do you know you're saved? How do you know you're a Christian? Friend, I hope you don't look back at some past decision. Well, there was this ceremony. There was this event. I filled out a piece of paper. I got pictures. Are you in love with Jesus today, friend? That's how you know you're saved. It's not something you've done in the past. Believing in Jesus is continuous, ongoing, and growing trust in Christ. The world says seeing is believing. I want to see some signs. God says believing is seeing. And that leads to my last thought. Authentic faith is evidenced in us not just by a past decision, but through active discipleship.